Get On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. It took just 11 hours of deliberation before the jury in the Derek Chauvin trial returned guilty verdicts on all charges leveled against the accused. On the streets and nationally and internationally, the reaction was swift and mainly jubilant. The, from the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus, we have some official press statements and leading off from the IBLC, we have the following. The IBLC is overwhelmed with relief at the return of the guilty verdict and the trial of Derek Chauvin today. We applaud the jury for their diligence and coming to this decision. We applaud the advocates and allies that raised their voices when George Floyd was silenced. And this from Derek Johnson, president and CEO of the NAACP. While justice landed Derek Chauvin behind bars for murdering George Floyd, no amount of justice will bring Gianna's father back. The same way a reasonable police officer would never suffocate an unarmed man to death, a reasonable justice system would recognize its roots in white supremacy and end qualified immunity. Police are here to protect, not lynch. President Joe Biden praised a guilty verdict, but called it a too rare step to deliver basic accountability for black Americans who have been killed during interactions with the police. It was a murder in the full light of day, and it ripped the blinders off for the world to see. For so many, it feels like it took all of that for the, for the judicial system to deliver just basic accountability. And it should be noted that two days before the conclusion of Chauvin's trial, the New York Times reported that at least 64 people, more than half of which were people of color, have died at the hands of police since the start of Derek Chauvin's trial. Some of the more widely covered incidents occurred on March 29 when police in Chicago fatally shot 13-year-old Adam Toledo after chasing him down an alley. The next day, Michael Hughes, age 32, was fatally shot by police at a quality inn in Jacksonville, Florida, after police said he tried to grab a taser. And on March 31st, a 40-year-old mentally ill man in Claremont, New Hampshire, was shot multiple times and killed after an exchange of gunfire with state police. On April 11th, an officer in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, fatally shot Dante Wright, 20 years of age, during a traffic stop. His death is not far from where Floyd died and where Chauvin was on trial. The verdict in the Chauvin trial and incidents like these have driven activists across the country to call for a change in the way law enforcement deals with civilians, especially people of color. Of these 64 incidents mentioned, at least 42 involve people accused of having firearms, more than 12 involve people who were mentally ill, and several involve domestic violence. Additionally, almost all victims were men, the vast majority Black or Latino. The majority were also young, many of whom were under the age of 30, include four who were just teenagers. Here again to help us with our post-analysis of the Derek Chauvin trial are, are these 
trial are uh, Monroe County Circuit Judge, the Honorable Valerie Houghton, Indiana State Police Captain Ruben Marte, Criminal Defense Attorney Joseph Lozano, and representing Monroe County Prosecutor Erica Oliphant, we have Chief Deputy Prosecutor Jeff Kerr. Distinguished guests, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 11 hours to deliberate. Wow. Um, thoughts, reactions on that alone. Who wants to go first? Why don't you take a swipe at it? I personally was relieved. I, I, I have to admit, I was relieved. I, I agree with the president, President Biden's statement, but quite honestly, having seen other verdicts come through before when you assume that it's virtually a slam dunk case, I was not going to bet that the verdict would be guilty. So I, I was quite frankly relieved, although I thought it was a shame that you had to have so much overwhelming evidence just to get a guilty verdict. Jeff. Yes, um, I would say, um, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly why it took 11 hours. Uh, it seemed to me the prosecution, uh, they put on a case of 38 witnesses, uh, 10 of which were police officers, which uh, as I understand it is unprecedented uh, that that many law enforcement came out in a trial of this nature and actually spoke out against the conduct here. Um, and I think it was a good strategy on the part of the prosecution. Normally as a prosecutor, you would not want to put that many witnesses on. You would want to keep the case as simple uh, and streamlined as possible. But I think they knew here, the prosecution knew here, uh, what a hurdle they had, even though they had the nine minutes and 29 seconds, uh, which is compelling evidence, of course. Um, but they knew the hurdle of qualified immunity. And they knew that they didn't want to leave anything on the table. So they put on 38 witnesses, which, like I said, would, many would consider overkill. Most prosecutors would. But um, they did it. Kudos to them. Kudos to those 10 officers who came in and said, this is excessive force. This is not how we train. This is not right. Um, so. I'm sorry. I meant to say prosecutor Kerr. That's okay. Just, just so used to calling you Jeff, you know. <laughs> No need for formality. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Captain Marte, let me ask you a question. What, how did it, what thoughts came to your head when we read the narrative about the uh, killings by police since the uh, George Chauvin trial? Well, be before I get to that, let me, let me say from the, the actual trial, my perspective, but it, it was, it, it actually proved the point that uh, the good officers are trying to make where this, 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 uh, uh, thought of that we're going to back up an office no matter what they do. And I'm glad so many officers got a chance to actually speak their mind uh, under oath and actually just prove to everyone that, you know, we have very, very good officers out there. And unfortunately, the one that get the spotlight are the ones that uh, do the wrong thing. And then to answer your question, you know, the, the thought process in my head was this. It's a very, very stressful, tenseful, emotional period that we're in right now. And every time something that we have to use force is never, it never looks good. It never does. Um, it's a tragedy for anyone to lose their life. It, it truly is. Uh, it, it, it's a very difficult position for us to be in this particular time. 
What I mean by that is this, is that I, I, I fully understand the frustration. I fully understand people want responses right away. Um, that's the tough part. People want the video, the video tapes released right away. And there's so many different policies, so many different statutes that you have to go by uh, just to do things the right way. And I understand people want things very fast, but it's a very, very difficult thing to, to watch, very difficult things to review and or explain. And Attorney Lozano, did you want to comment? With your original question on the verdict being 11 hours, I was a bit surprised, I guess the opposite way that Jeff had mentioned. I, I was surprised um, that it seemed like to me that didn't seem like, it seemed pretty quick to me, mainly because you have a rule of thumb, depending on how long a trial lasts, um, expecting how long it would take for them to reach a verdict. But I think it, it shows that the case was pretty clear. I think that one thing that's changed with trying cases, especially in the last 10 years, is, you know, uh, having the ability to have video. I mean, everybody's got a cell phone, everybody's got a video. And I think that it always adds such context to what really happened. You could see things as they really happen in real time. I don't know if anyone watches that video and sees that and doesn't recognize that there's something criminal there. And so, you know, I, I th thought it was quick, but I, I think it's because it speaks to, um, a good job by the prosecutors in that case. Uh, Judge Houghton, your opinion on the trial, uh, was it fair, balanced, or were the presentations just, as they say, slam dunk as far as the prosecutors were concerned? I, I have to say, I don't ever think anybody that's ever done a trial will never say anything is slam dunk. Trust me on that. And I, I know that, that both Mr. Lozano and Mr. Kerr uh, concur with that. It's it's never a slam dunk. I thought I I agree with Mr. Kerr that the um, the prosecution did a really I thought amazing job in terms of the pacing that they that they managed to do. They personalized Mr. Floyd first. Then you know they had a number of a number of uh, witnesses for that. They brought in technical witnesses. Dr. Tobin was uh, I think everybody was blown away by his testimony. He was clear, he was precise, but at the same time, he was very relatable and understandable for the witness, for the jurors rather. And then they brought back, they brought in officers, then they brought back in as, you know, rebuttal, I guess, uh, some of the earlier witnesses. The pacing I thought was just fantastic. And I think that the judge from the rulings, I might not have made all the same rulings that he did, but at the same time, I thought that he was, from what I saw, pretty pretty well balanced and, and fair. And I think he was trying to run a, uh, a trial that didn't appear to be biased towards either, either party. And, and, you know, that's, as a judge, that's what you want to do is, is you know, conduct a fair, trial that's, you know, without biases and quite honestly, probably that's not going to be appealed on any, any good basis either. So. Am I correct that the, the judge in this case allowed the civil trial to proceed first or, or was that out of the judge's control? I don't think it's, it, it was anything the judge had any control over. I, 
in here in this jurisdiction, and this is because I'm not familiar with Minnesota law, but here I would have no control over, you know, the civil civil proceedings. That would just be a whole separate issue. And my, my guess is that that was the same for, for them. And again, I just want to draw a contrast and that that just seemed to be so unusual to have the uh, civil proceedings first and then the criminal proceedings. I was, I, think the that, I was surprised at that, quite frankly, myself, but apparently it didn't hurt anything either way. Usually, I think if you have the criminal trial first, it's a bit easier to proceed with the civil trial because the the burden is so much higher for the state in a in a criminal trial so then it does become much easier for the civil trial and i want to talk about the the topic and this is an open question to everyone and i'd like to get captain marte's uh, take on this qualified immunity can someone explain that to our listeners and that has come under fire uh, during this trial and its merits. Um, and if they take it away, what do you think may happen? So uh, let me lead off Captain Marte, if you want to chime in on that one. Well, not, not being attorney, I'll, I'll take a shot. But the, um, for us, pretty much is, it, is that if you're doing your job properly and you follow the protocol and the policy and actually the law, you are uh, sort of to a degree uh, protected from uh, uh, civil lawsuits. If, if I understand it properly, um, but that's only if you're you're actually doing the job properly and 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 you follow the guidelines going by the training that you you actually uh, been trained. Um, uh, but it's, it's it's very they really put a magnifying glass on you in the particular situation that you're in in order to for that to be actually carried through. Um, I, 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 I've never experienced that. I've never knew anyone that had to go to something to that degree. So I really don't have that more to say about that than what I know to that degree. Um, but again, it's, it's not an easy process uh, to go through. Someone else uh, comment on that? I can, Clarence. Um, so if a state officer is um, violating a, a person's civil rights, uh, excessive force would be one example, then that officer is subject to a federal lawsuit what we call a 1983 action. It's 42 USC 1983. And the US Supreme Court in 1967 established a defense to federal 1983 suits and that is qualified immunity. Um, and qualified immunity protects uh, state and local officials including police officers from personal liability unless they are determined to have violated um, what the court defines as an individual's clearly established statutory or constitutional rights. And I think what the, the problem has become is that sort of an elusive standard that's very hard for the plaintiff to actually meet. So as a result, over the years, um, many excessive force cases have, um, have gone to the defendant because um, the plaintiff could not overcome this qualified immunity defense. And, and then finally, one more question for um, uh, Judge Houghton. And I know your time is limited with us today and that only means we have to bring you back. But, um, <laughs> I had a question concerning, okay, what now? We know that there's a sentencing date and there are prescribed times or, or sentencing times. What latitude does the judge have to follow that? Are, is that judge mandated to follow um, those times or can they 
add more on or take more take some away? The, the judge has to follow the guidelines within a particular level of of crime. But, uh, in this case, he was uh, Mr. Chauvin was was convicted of second degree murder, third degree murder, and I think third degree manslaughter. And therefore, I think there's a certain, I think the most he could be sentenced to under second degree murder is 40 years. I think it's a maximum of 40 years. The judge does not have the discretion to add any time to that. And quite frankly, the judge will in all likelihood not but here we have what we call an advisory sentence. I, I don't know exactly how it is in Minnesota, but we have an advisory sentence. And then years can be added to that sentence if there are aggravators. It can be reduced if there are mitigators. Now, the state is going to argue in Minnesota that there are aggravators. My understanding is that they're going to argue that uh, Mr. Chauvin was in a position of control and power over, over Mr. Floyd. Also that Mr. Chauvin had previous uh, disciplinary complaints and, and against him. Also, uh, well, you know, things along that line. The defense will argue mitigators saying that Mr. Uh, Chauvin has never had any conviction before that he's basically led a crime-free life and therefore should be receiving a lesser sentence but still within the guidelines of that particular statute for which he's convicted, that's what Mr. Uh, Chauvin will be sentenced on the base, on, that will be the basis on which he's sentenced. Um, and that holds true for, for each of the counts. That was interesting. Aggravators and mitigators, I have to remember that one. Next time, <laughs> next time I go to trial. <laughs> um, I have a question for the, our two attorneys, and then I have a follow-up question, uh, and I want to bring in Captain Marte to that one. But clearly in the first trial, um, the prosecution brought out the big guns with all the medical witnesses, all the, uh, the, the senior officers from the police department. Um, do you anticipate them using the same strategy when they when the other three officers, or former officers, go on trial? I think that with its officers, the other officers involved, I think you're going to have to, it's going to be a little different. And I think it's mainly going to be different because they're being charged as accomplices or aiding and abetting. So you're going to have to show that their actions and somehow contributed or they didn't do enough to stop things. Um, so I think that in this case, in this trial, the big issue was more of causation. And you had a real battle of, you know, with experts and uh, experts saying, you know, if it could have been caused by something else or what, would, what was the direct cause of uh, Mr. Floyd's death. And also, and part of that is whether or not he, you know, did proper procedures. I think one of the things that will be the same is you're going to bring in other officers to talk about what are your duties and what you ought to be doing if you see another officer breaking the law? I think that matters. I think that the big thing in this trial that we've had, uh, that had happened in this trial that hadn't happened in the past is, you know, it's cliche to say, but people talk about the, you know, the blue wall coming down, you know, and mm -hmm. 
that you have officers who are willing to testify and do do the right thing. Because a lot of times you don't, um, and that's what we've had in the past. And I think that in the upcoming trials, it's going to be more of an issue of, um, I think that you're still going to have to have the other officers come in and say what you should, what they should have done or what they could have done. And then I don't know if it's as much about causation. I think that's going to be secondary. So I would expect more of the same, but maybe not as much as far as medical experts. Yeah, it's it's definitely going to be interesting because as Joe pointed out, aiding and abetting is certainly different than proving the uh, the original principal's liability. So um, in this particular case, my understanding is one of the officers, I think it was Kang, he held uh, Mr. Floyd's midsection down uh, during that. So he there was an affirmative act, of course, in his case. Um, Officer Lane held his legs down. So there was an affirmative act there. But, um, Officer Tao stood, stood watch. And so that becomes a little more difficult. Um, uh, if you're you know, acting in concert, if they can prove that, then he would be guilty to the same degree. But uh, as our jury instruction in Indiana says, mere presence at the scene and failure to oppose uh, doesn't make one guilty of aiding. So I don't know how Minnesota approaches it, but it's it's definitely going to be more difficult, especially with regard to uh, to Tao's uh, criminal responsibility. And and that actually goes right into my follow up question. Um, two of the remaining three defendants were were rookie officers, uh, days on the job, and it's my understanding that they're going to be tried together. And uh, the reason I, I cannot understand that is because if I'm a rookie officer with with that amount of time, um, my thinking is that the veterans there failed. They failed me as a trainee and they led me to the slaughter. So why would those guys agree to be tried or, or was it even their choice to be tried with the uh, one with the other guy? Was it was it their choice or not? I, I doubt it was probably their choice. I think that the prosecutor of this um, is probably made some type of motion to join them. I think they originally joined all four and mm. you can make motions to try to join defendants together. They're tried them together. The defense would have opportunities to file motions to, uh, you know, the sever the defendants, you know, there's strategy involved in all. If I was representing one of the other three, I would tell them there's no way you ever want to be tried at the same time that Shelvin was. You know, uh, I've had cases where I've had co-defendants where I didn't want them tried together because what would happen is, is you know, the prosecutor sits back and let the defense attorneys sling mud at each other the whole time. You know, I've had cases where I intentionally uh, filed for an early trial to make sure that um, clients would, my client wouldn't be tried at the same time with a co-defendant. So I don't think it's their choice. I I think that if you're the state, you perhaps want to try the two rookies together because you're going to anticipate the same evidence and same defenses from them. And maybe their defense attorneys don't mind being tried together if they're together because they're going to be having the same defense as well. So I could see a situation where you wouldn't mind it, but I, I doubt it was their original choice. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I'm going to go ahead and put it out there right now. I might catch a little flack for this, but I would understand if if they uh, if they had decided not to try the two rookies in a trial. That I think they definitely should have been disciplined in some way. Uh, they've already lost their jobs, but to to be held to the same standard as a 19-year veteran, and I think the other guy was a five-year veteran, 
Um, I, I think, uh, well, actually, what do you think about that, Captain Marte? Well, to piggyback what you just said, I, I think you are, you see it from different lens because of your military background. Absolutely. And and I could tell you that that whenever, every time I get a chance to talk to the community, I, I learn so much. One of the things that's forefront is that they truly don't understand the culture of law enforcement in the sense to the way people have been taught about law enforcement. In other words, they haven't been to the academy. They haven't been trained by a training officer. They haven't sold patrol. So they, they don't know this world. And I understand that. So I, I, I could truly understand why the frustration and anger. But at the same time, you prove my point to a degree where, where you could see from different lens based on your background and experience. I have to balance that with when I talk to other people that don't have that experience because you will get pushed back all the way. So I, it is a very good, delicate balance. But what you said is correct, in my opinion, because when you, in fact, in any job, if you're brand new in any job, normally the senior person or your supervisor tells you what to do and you follow through. Now, in this profession is changing to a degree that now, yes, you're supposed to follow orders. Yes, you're supposed to listen to your senior commander at the scene, but at the same time, now we have to really go back and look, if this person is breaking the law, is doing something so outrageous, you're gonna to have to intervene. And, and that's something that that is, uh, uh, I wouldn't say new, but it kind of contradicts what we teach them at the academy. Because we take a leap of faith that the senior person there is doing the right things for the right reason. And then when it turns out not to be, you're, if you're the rookie there, you're sitting back thinking, my goodness, what just happened here? Because when we're trained, we're trained, if, you sh if, if the senior officer is doing something because that individual has more experience than you do, has knows the job better than you do, and you follow that person's lead. This is so unfortunate for these two, two officers, well, former officers, because they're very, very, very new. They didn't have a chance to make a mistake or learn from the mistakes. Because I could tell you when I was so brand new, I made mistakes. But God, I, I, I learned from those mistakes, but I was not put in the situation these two young men were put in. Because that's really, really sort of follow for the rest of their lives. I want to jump in right now and say if you've just joined us on Bringing On, we've had the pleasure of speaking, um, first of all, with the Monroe County Circuit Judge, the Honorable Valerie Houghton, Indiana State Police Captain, who you just heard, Ruben Marte, Criminal Defense Attorney Joseph Lozano, and representing Monroe County Prosecutor Erica Oliphant, we have Chief Deputy Prosecutor Jeff Kerr. Um, we want to thank, uh, first of all, the Honorable Valerie Houghton for joining us. I know that she is such high popular demand that uh, she is being pulled in different uh, directions today, but she afforded us time and we do greatly thank you for that. And we wish to have you back on again. Thank you very much. And I'm sorry I have to leave so early. And again, we thank you for agreeing to come on again in the future at some point. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> um, I want to talk, and, and we're continuing on with that theme um, of just the, the other rookies. There, there's, a, there's a broader uh, effort afoot. Uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2020. And, and for those listening, we've heard a lot about that, uh, a, a push, an effort to pass this le legislation. And if I'm not um, wrong, William, correct me, this has passed the House already. I think so. And, and may 
it, stand, it stands a chance to get passed in the Senate. But what it does, it prohibits federal, state, and local law enforcement from racial, religious, and discriminatory profiling and mandates training on racial, religious, and discriminatory profiling for all enforcement. And it requires law enforcement to collect data on all investigatory activities. And I, and I think additional measures, it bars the chokehold, which we've seen in cases over the past few years. We have witnessed individuals uh, having their lives extinguished by use of a chokehold. Um, and of course, these officers were given the doubt and, and we had, of course, the concept of uh, qualified immunity. And it, to me, it, that muddies and grays the whole situation. But the one thing, you could pass all the laws in the world, you can put on trial all, all those who have crossed that threshold of good law enforcement. It's not gonna bring back the victim. So if this law in any way um, causes that officer to check themselves uh, individually or collectively, then uh, I, I like to get some some um, some input from our guests that are remaining uh, just on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2020. We'll start with um, uh, Attorney Joseph Lozano. I think that any you know I think that anything that tries to help or mandate better training is always going to be a good thing. Um, I think it's, you know, in any job, if you can get more effective and better training, you know, this kind of piggybacks on what we were talking about before, that policing relies upon veteran officers to help train, you know, rookie and, you know, rookie officers. And unfortunately, in this situation, you had, I think, the two most veteran people there, uh, Chauvin and, and Tao, um, who not only were just you know, giving a bad example, but I think that they had a prior uh, complaints against them with uh, use of excessive force. So I think that any mandate that we have that is that's going to try to uh, mandate better training is always a good thing. Um, I think it's it will have a real effect um, and not just better policing, but obviously saving lives. Uh, Prosecutor Kerr. Yes, thank you, Clarence. Um, I know uh, Prosecutor Schleicher said in the uh, in his closing argument in the Chauvin trial, he said, "There's nothing worse for good police than bad police," and uh, and I think that rings true. I, I think good police, and I and I think Captain Marte can can support this. You know, good police um, make for good police. You know, we want good police want that. They want everybody else to be good because. When there's a bad actor out there, it reflects poorly on the good the good police who are just trying to do their job every day. So um, I would agree with Joe that um, if this act is going to help us uh, get better trained officers, keep a better eye perhaps uh, on the bad actors um, before it gets to the point that it did for Mr. Floyd, um, then you know that's certainly what we need. Um, and the last that I read, I think it was about 60 votes short in the Senate. It had passed the House and it was about 60 votes short in the Senate. And unfortunately, with legislation like this, you have to strike while the proverbial iron is hot. Uh, public interest tends to dissipate. But my goodness, you know, we just noted that on, on April the 18th, uh, at least 64 people, more than half of which were people of color, had died at the hands of police. Now, of course, every incident is taken singularly, so we cannot put a blanket causation on any of these things. Um, and since the start of that trial, 64 people, of which uh, almost half 
or people of color. And there were some notable cases out there. And to me, it just draws the attention back to the fact that there needs to be uh, some restructuring, some refocusing of law enforcement. And Captain Marte, we, we've, we've talked about this all the time. And, and given what's been recently transpiring, what, what are your continued thoughts on this? You know, that, that's, 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 that's kind of a difficult question to answer. Uh, and, and the reason why I say that, that is this, you know, in, in my position, I, I, I get to meet a whole lot of new officers and in their career and uh, seeing them at the academy, but also at the same time, I also go out and talk to the community and talk to people that are really, really fearful of the police. And, you know, it, it's, it's unfortunate that, that things are still continuing to happen the way they are. Um, when we talk to the community and try to explain what we do and at the same time try to ask them to do certain things, it's very difficult when things still happen the way they do because they're losing faith and losing confidence on, 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 on police. At the same time, when I talk to the officers that I know if in fact I have a good heart and want to do the right thing, they just as tired of seeing other officers do negative that shouldn't take place in the first place. It's a frustration that I can't even describe to you on both sides. Um, there's nothing disheartening being in a room talking to people that feel the same way and can't come up with the actual answer that, that, that's uh, universal throughout the United States. It's just, it's very difficult. When I, I'm sitting here thinking about the training, training is very good and I agree with that 100%. Uh, I'm fortunate that every department trains the same way. Not every department received the same training and it reflects on some officer's reaction or actions where they supposed to protect and serve. You know, the mindset of a certain person coming into this profession far most has to be really, really looked at and examined because when I get a chance to talk to a group of young, young officers, uh, either for the state police or when I talk to other uh, academies, you know, I, I always stress the fact that you bring yourself into this, to this profession. You know what you have in your heart and you actually make this profession better uh, just by being yourself and being compassionate and do not let a, uh, a, a certain small group of officers teach you the wrong way, uh, uh, encourage you to do things the wrong way, that wouldn't work. At the end, we all lose. We all lose. So, so I don't know if I answered your question, but it's a very, very difficult emotional time that we live in. I, I know that. I feel it when we talk to the community. I feel it when we talk to the officers. Um, one thing we do have in common, and I mean by the vast, vast majority of, of, of officers in the community is we both want, want, want this thing to stop. We both want to have a, a, a certain trust level that, that we really need to push forward. And, and hopefully, hopefully, I have hope that uh, things will get better. Um, you know, looking at what's going on now, with some form of uniform training across the board help the situation and i know in some elements everything should be uniform across the country but then again there's some unique training per locale which i imagine goes on but with what's going on i i hear activists screaming for this legislators screaming for this that if there could be a uniform way everything from uh, psychological training uh, you know uh, sending out the notices that yes this officer 
has uh, been in, in uh, an internal investigation and perhaps for these reasons within you know their, their confidentiality I know but some type of uniformity because is policing at the point where I show up and I want to sign up I fill out an application and because the departments may be strapped for individuals I'm thrust into a position that emotionally psychologically I, I should not be in and, and that's that sort of adds to the fear that a lot of people have. Was that for me? Um, it, I, I can't tell you uh, about the other departments, but I can tell you that the majority do a, a very strenuous job uh, of, of uh, background of an officer. Uh, they really spend a lot of time doing background, um, even the psychological portion of it. Uh, that I do know. Uh, one of the things now that has come to the question before when I talk to the community is what are you doing, for example, if an officer is, uh, uh, does something negative in one department and now he's trying to transfer with your department, what are you doing about that? Um, I don't know the actual particulars, but I think I think there's legislation coming through right now where in the state of Indiana, uh, I can't speak for the other state, that, that we will be mandated if, if an officer does something that uh, is disciplined for yeah, you, you are to share that information with the new department office trying to apply for. So we're trying to make sure that whoever works, for example, for, for our department, that, that it has a good character background, um, that we truly know who are we hiring to wear the, um, our uniform. No, if, if we're talking about um, training here, police training. Chief Arredondo from the Minneapolis Police Department said during the trial that the training is not the issue. He said the training is there, that some officers just don't follow the training. And to me, that suggests that, that there's a larger problem, maybe uh, the culture. Uh, for example, in, in the UK, in the past 10 years, police killed four people. In the US, just in the past year, police killed 1,100 people. But even if you move away from the police and look at our society in general, we kill a hell of a lot of people uh, more than, than any other country. We lose more to police shootings and then we've lost uh, soldiers in, in, in Afghanistan. But if training, uh, if people are looking to training as, as, you know, as a corrective measure, then I think we're gonna fall uh, a little bit short because it may be an uphill climb to change the culture just with training. But in your opinion, and this goes out to anybody, what else can be done? Well, um, William, I know um, Indiana House Bill uh, 1006, I think is supposed to go to the uh, governor's desk. And that uh, addresses, uh, as Captain Marte was mentioning, that addresses uh, opportunity for a hearing and a decertification process for officers who have been accused of misconduct. So I think um, as part of that bill, then if we may not be able to predict when the officer is hired, you know, we could do all the psychological testing we want, we can do backgrounds, but we may not know until they get into that position and we see how they actually act in that position, um, whether they're going to be good officers or not. And, and if we determine that they're not, if we determine that there's this 
pattern of misconduct that's starting, then it's good to have a decertification process because that's not something that we have statewide right now. It would be up to an individual department right now to spot that and take corrective measures. But if we have a decertification process statewide, that'll help and that'll help get the word out to the other departments within the state. Yeah, we don't want that person working for us. Uh, yeah, you know, and I think uh, there's a recognition that training probably wouldn't be the only thing, um, you know, to help solve the problem. I think that's why there's talks about uh, doing away with qualified immunity um, to make, you know, lawsuits, you know, easier. I think that also a thing that needs to be considered and thought of that maybe after the prosecution of this case, um, prosecutor offices may be a little bit more aggressive with going after obvious misconduct or criminal conduct by officers. I, I would say through the years, there's been an absolute reluctance on mm -hmm. um, prosecutors to actually file cases and prosecute um, cases like this. Uh, I may be mistaken. I may be mistaken that uh, with a different case, but I think the original prosecutor who looked at this decided not to file any charges and they had to get a special prosecutor involved. Uh, so I think that uh, perhaps after this, one of the changes that we would see that we don't uh, haven't seen through the years is actually prosecutor offices being a bit more aggressive and going after officers who've committed criminal offenses. Captain Marte, there's been uh, some suggestions that police officers be required to have an associate's level college degree in order to, uh, to, to be a police officer. What, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that would help uh, anything? You know, that, that's, that's tough to answer that one because, you know, there was a time that we had to have a, uh, uh, when I went through, you had to have a bachelor's degree. Um, so I, I hate to think that, that the degree will make a difference. Um, I truly believe that a person that wants to do the right thing and, and, and for the right reasons, doesn't have to have a bachelor's degree or a social degree uh, uh, because some some departments just can't pay enough as well you know so it's it's a very uh complicated position because some department pay you well some department don't pay you well um and i hate to say it comes down to finance as well because you have a good officer you know that gets paid really well and then and, and you also have a good uh, good officer that doesn't get paid really well and do the right thing. So one of the reasons why that I, I, I mentioned, you know, I can't tell what the person had in the heart, but I always tell people, you know, you make that uniform, that uniform doesn't make you. And unfortunately, unfortunately, when we mention culture, we have often sometimes that just to try to fit in with a certain group of officers might do things they shouldn't be doing in the first place. That's a difficult thing to, to deal with as well. So that's why I tell people, follow, follow, be, be, be your own person and do the right thing regardless if you are seeing things that shouldn't be done. And in fact, if you're seeing things that shouldn't be done, you need to be the one standing up and say, hey, this is wrong and, and, and follow the protocol and report that. So it's easy for me to say it, but when you're working this type of job and you have, you have to depend on your fellow officers, it, it, it's, it's, very, it's very, very difficult. Now, no excuses here. You know, you have to do the right thing. And one of the things now that, that we are emphasizing is the duty to intervene. If you see something that's wrong, you have to intervene. And that's one thing that uh, has been around for some time, but is really taking notice now. It yeah. truly really is. 
you know, along the same lines, uh, we talked just briefly about decertification, but then there's been a practice of transferring. Um, and we've known for years that in some faith communities, rather than um, remove someone from uh, the ministry, if you will, they've been transferred. Uh, it's like the bad apple, apple has just been passed on. Um, how extensive can decertification be? I know everyone has rights and officers have rights. So are there protocols in place, well in place for decertification or, or is this just, you just build a paper trail until finally it's taken to court or how, how does that process take place? And this is for anyone. Oh, I see the eagerness here. <laughs> I can take a stab at it. It would probably be wrong though. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and call out uh, Attorney Lozano. I think that the cert decertification, I think is a good step. And I think it's probably the only thing that they could try to do now. I mean, when you deal with law enforcement officers, you also have to be have concerns about what they collectively bargain for too with their departments as well. They're gonna want protections for themselves as well because Let's face it, they face a lot of uh, bogus claims against them, too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that there has to be a balance there. So I think that there's going to be concern, even on the part of good officers, when you talk about decertification. Some of the best officers I worked with when I was a prosecutor, well, a lot of times would have claims made against them because people were upset that they were being prosecuted, you know, based on actions that they had. Um, but I do think that decertification is a good thing if you have the right kind of process and it can't be abused one way or the other um, to, you know, and I think at minimum what that would do is give a paper trail in case a department does pick up a transfer who then has, uh, who then commits misconduct or a personal um, or has a criminal issue arise, but there's a paper trail mainly probably for a civil suit where you could say, hey, you should have known better because this officer has a paper trail where he's been decertified. So I do think that there's legitimate concerns on both sides, but I think it's a good step. Um, the fraternal order of police runs a lot of power and might and control, influence. And in a, a lot of the high profile cases that have been made public, a statement from the FOP, I think has swayed both the prosecution um, and whether or not uh, the person's even, you know, not only swayed it to the point of whether or not they're brought to trial, but in some ways, maybe even swayed the outcome. Am I wrong in making that um, statement? Okay, I, I will select <laughs> uh, Prosecutor Kerr, if, if you'll be so kind as to the power and influence of the FOP and your experience uh, with your assessment. And, and I understand you have an excellent working relationship with our current uh, city and state individuals, but you've read and you've heard of other places, what can go on? Yeah, I have read and heard that in other places. Um, I don't feel like that's the situation here in Monroe County. Uh, and I think what prosecutors need to do is that is not be influenced by that, not be influenced by anyone. In fact, they need to look at the facts and look at the law and they need to decide to prosecute because it's the right thing to do. 
not because they're receive, receiving pressure um, from any, any party or any group. Um, it's because the facts are there and it's the right thing to do. So yes, I, I think there are in other places um, where certain organizations um, you know, can uh, create some pressure and cause the prosecution not uh, to bring forth a case that should be brought forth. Um, but if the prosecutor is doing the right thing, then they are examining the facts and they're bringing it forth just on the facts. And one thing that I've always felt strongly about is that police departments should not be allowed to investigate themselves. But uh, what about the situation down in uh, Georgia in, with the Ahmad Arbery killing, where police had a close working relationship with the prosecutor and the prosecutor declined to uh, bring charges against those three individuals. And it wasn't until some months later after one of them, and, and you all know the story, one of them released the video that uh, the situation was finally addressed. Well, I think that uh, in, in that case and, and, and in other cases similar to that, you know, the prosecutor should do what they're supposed to do and recognize that they have a conflict and get someone who uh, a special prosecutor or someone to get involved uh, to independently evaluate that if you have a prior existing relationship with them. And I think that I think that in Indiana, we have a system for that. And I think actually, in my experience as a prosecutor and defense attorney, I think our law enforcement agencies, at least locally, do a good job that if something's involving an officer, um, you know, of a department that they get an outside agency to do that, whether or not, you know, they'll call the state police or some other agency to do the investigation. So I think, you know, the problem that we run into with, with lots of these cases, you don't have people doing what they're supposed to be doing and making uh, the right choices, which frankly are, are clear cut, easy choices to make. Um, right, and, and I understand what you're saying that they should do, uh, they should conduct themselves in a certain manner, but all too often they don't. So right. my question is, should that decision be taken away from them? Uh, don't even give them the opportunity or the discretion to um, uh, be guilty of a conflict. Just take it away from them right off the bat. If uh, whenever there is a conflict, then somebody by law is automatically removed. Yeah, I think in some states, the attorney general's office can actually take that power from the local prosecutor. Um, Keith Ellison. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There's an example right there. Um, so um, Indiana is not currently set up like that, but in other states, the um, attorney general can step in um, when they believe that the prosecutor is not doing their job um, or, or has a conflict um, in a particular situation. We're, we're quickly running out of time, um, and I, I wanted to have one last question to sort of go around and and get some thoughts, final thoughts on, on both this trial and, uh, you know, just looking ahead in the future. Is this the landmark trial? Is this the transformative uh, occurrence that's going to just change uh, law enforcement for the better? Uh, maybe the culture? And I, I, these are sort of philosophical uh, responses I'm asking for, but in the final few minutes that we have, uh, I'll start with you, Prosecutor Kerr, as you just offered uh, an, uh, an observation. But is this that landmark transformative court court trial? 
Yeah, I think it is um, because I, you know, I, I don't know the statistics exactly. I've read anywhere from uh, 29% to 50% or something like that of these particular trials have actually resulted in a successful uh, conviction later. Um, and, and that's because of that qualified immunity hurdle. Um, and I think one thing about um, this case is, uh, for one, the conduct was so egregious, I think the prosecution was certainly able to get over that hurdle. Um, but going forward, the question is going to be with qualified immunity still in place. Um, on different facts, would a prosecutor be able to make that hurdle? Uh, nevertheless, I think this does show that it can be done. The 10 law enforcement officers actually came out and testified, which, as I said before, is unprecedented that a law enforcement officer came out against another one that that many of them did and said, you know what, this isn't right. This isn't how we're trained and this is not how we're instructed to behave. So, yes, I think it is landmark and I think it, it's just the tip of the iceberg going forward. Um, Attorney uh, Lozano. Uh, I think I, I agree. It, it, uh, it has already been a landmark uh, trial for the things that a lot of things that uh, Jeff has indicated. I think it was uh, very significant that it seemed that officers would actually come out and testify against another fellow officer. Um, I do think that, you know, also what's different is that you had a, uh, a prosecution um, that actually went forward against an officer where so many times it doesn't happen. Um, so I, I would say I'm hopeful that that means since uh, we have some changes, obviously um, there's been new legislation that's being proposed. I think a lot of departments and, and agencies are looking at themselves what we can do to be better. I think that I'm a little still skeptical because so many times you do think that you run into something that could be transformative and it doesn't seem to pan out. So I think people still need to stay vigilant and aggressive on things. Captain Marte. From, uh, from my lens, I, I echo and I agree with everything that the, the two gentlemen before me said, you know, for, but I really, really, from a community perspective, I, they got to see from the chief, the head of the agency, all the way down to officers from the road. And that's very important because the chief starts the trend and that's everywhere you see the chief of police at a trial like that. And then you also have supervisors saying the same thing. More importantly, you have a training individual that trains other officers saying, that's not the way we train. You don't train people to do what this individual did. That's to me, that was very important. Because every time I talk to the community and I, and I, and I, and I, and I say, you know, please don't think that all of you officers, you know, because they truly believe the thin blue line. They really believe that, you know, and I understand why. So when I saw the chief of police say, no, that's not, that's, this is not what we do. When you see supervisors said, no, this is not what we do. And when you also see the training personnel, people that actually train said, we do not train our officers to act that way and use that type of force. And it's co fellow coworkers as well. To me, that was so important. And I, I, it was refreshing to see that truly happen because now, not only, uh, uh, it, it helps me when I talk to the community to, to say, you heard it, you saw it for yourselves. And at the same time, also, uh, it might might help another police department uh, when you see the chief of police take the first stand and everyone else follows. Well, gentlemen, that's, uh, 
all of the time that we have remaining, you know, this has been, uh, this trial, this whole event has been such a landmark event throughout the country and uh, it's made its mark in our history. So we've done two shows on this already. And, and I think with another trial looming, we can uh, look forward to uh, part three. So we uh, definitely hope that we can get you guys uh, back on to do another post analysis. Uh, and I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. And with that, we wanted to thank Monroe County Circuit Judge, the Honorable Val Hodden, uh, who had to depart early, along with State Police Captain Ruben Marte, Criminal Defense Attorney Joseph Lozano, and Chief Deputy Prosecutor Jeff Kerr. Uh, we want to thank uh, you all for helping us with our post analysis of the Derek Chauvin trial. Bringing on has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address is bringingon at wfhb.org. If you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send that info directly to our Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about tonight's guests, you can contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. Dot .org. And I want to take a quick moment just to tell our listening audience that we are in the midst of a fund drive at WFHB. So we encourage you to pick up that phone, smile and dial and support programs like Bring It On and other great programming that occurs at WFHB. Um, it's, you can also give securely online if you go to WFHB.org. And our show's executive producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone, and our assistant producer is Wayne Posea. Our consultant and WFHB News Department director is Kate Young, and our program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. Our original theme music was created by Jamil FM with additional background tracks by David Baker. And for WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. I'm William Hosea. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.